Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on treating HIV hepatitis C co-infection, featuring Dr. Mark Selkowski, who is a professor of medicine and medical director of the Viral Hepatitis Center in the divisions of infectious diseases and gastroenterology hepatology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. He'll take us through a case study of a patient with HIV hepatitis C co-infection and explore the latest data and recommendations for treating both HIV and hepatitis C. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Dr. Selkowski. Hello and welcome to Key Decisions in HIV, Treating HIV and Hepatitis C Co-Infection. I'm Dr. Mark Solkowski from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'd like to start our presentation with a case. This is a 32-year-old woman with newly diagnosed HIV and Hepatitis C co-infection. Her risk activities included both injection drug use and commercial sex work. She was diagnosed with HIV co-infection about seven years ago and has a more recent diagnosis of HIV infection, which has led her into clinical care. No prior history of treatment with antiretroviral therapy or hepatitis C direct acting antivirals. Current CD4 count is above 450 with an HIV RNA of about 32,000. With respect to hepatitis C, she has genotype 3A, a common genotype, particularly among young people in the United States today, and a serum fibrosis panel showed stage two fibrosis. She has hep B surface antigen negative and has evidence of surface antibody positivity. Let's move into discussing the topic of HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, particularly the treatment. So the first thing I want to emphasize is that guidelines recommend treatment of all people with HIV and hepatitis C. What I mean by that is that we recommend HIV treatment. If we look to the left, the DHHS guidelines recommend that antiretroviral therapy should be initiated in all individuals independent of CD4 cell count. It's important to note that HIV treatment may slow liver disease progression due to hepatitis C. Similarly, the WSLD and IDSA guidelines for hepatitis C recommend that hepatitis C treatment with DAAs should be a priority for all people with HIV and hepatitis C. And they recommend and state that all patients with co-infection are candidates for curative therapy. Let's take a closer look at some of the issues of co-treatment of HIV and hepatitis C. So oftentimes, like the patient I presented, there is a decision about which one we should treat first. And for many people, initiation of antiretroviral therapy is the priority. However, it's important to note that it is not a requirement to be on HIV treatment and to have a suppressed HIV RNA before starting DAA. We can treat people for hepatitis C first, and sometimes that is actually the advantageous. When we think about hepatitis C treatment, it is relatively short. And some individuals may be ready to engage in an eight to 12 week course of DAAs as they prepare for lifelong antiretroviral therapy. 
In addition, the engagement in curative treatment of hepatitis C may facilitate additional engagement in HIV care. And finally, sustained virologic response or cure of hep C may reduce the risk of drug-induced liver injury. So I think it is important to think about, for some patients, hep C DAAs first. Now, we do recommend a delay between starting both. So oftentimes, if I'm going to start antiretroviral therapy, I'll delay the DAAs for four to six weeks just to get the person settled in and confirm tolerability of the antiretroviral regimen. Now, the other thing the guidelines point out, which is really important, is that HCV DNAs have a similar efficacy in persons with or without HIV co-infection. I won't go through the individual studies, but for recommended HCV DAAs, the cure rate or SVR rate, as it's known, for people with and without HIV is between 95 and 98%. Very high rates of HCV cure, similar safety and tolerability, which leads to the recommendation from the guidelines panel of recommending treatment for all persons with HIV. Now, when we look further at the WSLD IDSA recommendations for first-line treatment, they are very similar to those recommendations for people with HCV mono-infection. The recommendations are for pangeotypic regimens, like lecathrir pyrantosphere or sulfosphoropatosphere, or genotype-specific regimens, like elbrosir crisophobir and lidipasvir sulfosphere. I do want to point out one nuance that is slightly different for people with HIV, and that's for persons with HIV, hepatitis C, and compensated cirrhosis. The recommendation is for a longer course of therapy with glicapiropibrantosphere, abbreviated here as GLEPIP, for 12 weeks. Now, in clinical practice, many clinicians and patients have used eight weeks, and there is data to support this regimen for a shorter duration, but the guidelines do recommend 12 weeks. Now, if we look then at the antiretroviral guidelines, there is consensus across the world including the United States guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services, that first-line therapy should include a integrase strand transfer inhibitor like Victegravir or Dolutegravir in combination with nucleoside nucleotide analogs for most patients. Now, there are some variations across the IESUSA, European, and WHO recommendations but in general, it's an integrase inhibitor plus a nuke. Now, that is actually very fortunate when one looks at potential for drug interactions. And the one place that the guidelines panel really highlights is that treating co-infected patients is relatively simple and similar to mono-infection, but one does need to take into account drug interactions. Now, if we look at the antiretroviral regimen, and we look specifically at the integrase inhibitors, we can see across all the recommended regimens, including the rescue regimens of Softvelvox for people who fail first-line therapy, that there are really minimal drug interactions. I do want to point out that there were some interactions with tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate and concerns about increased levels with lidipasvir sulfosfavir, 
we do not see those using tenofovir-alphenamide. So for many people with HIV, taking first-line recommended antiretrovirals, the drug interactions with the antiviral therapy is relatively minimal. Of course, one needs to look at the full spectrum of medications the individual is taking, including medications to control lipids, as well as things like depression or other medical conditions. Now, what are the benefits of treatment? Well, the idea of treatment and prevention is well-established with HIV, but some important studies in people living with HIV and hepatitis C have also demonstrated that the widespread treatment and cure of hepatitis C among populations of individuals with HIV can lead to a dramatic reduction in the number of people living with hepatitis C, but also a reduction in incident cases of acute hepatitis C. Now, when people live with HIV, we do see sexual transmission among men of sex with men. And in this study done in Switzerland, they had three phases. In phase A, they tested all individuals with hepatitis C, RNA, and those who were infected, they treated with DAAs at a very high SVR rate. And then they rescreened. And what they found was a reduction in both chronic infection, but also a decrease in acute infections. So treatment can eliminate the risk of liver disease due to chronic infection, and it can prevent incident infections by reducing the community burden of active infection. The other important point to emphasize, as we look at high rates of treatment in cohorts of individuals with HIV, we've seen that many people have been successfully treated and cured as we're more than five years into the HCVDA era. But I want to emphasize that the group of people who have not yet been cured of hepatitis C are often the same people with incomplete engagement in HIV care. In this study by my colleague at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Sean Filati Noelia, we look at 593 people, and we can see that many have been successfully treated and engaged in the hep C care continuum. But we saw that the group of people who have not yet been cured were far more likely to have missed HIV care visits and not be successfully treated with antiretroviral therapy. What I want to make here it is critical to think about these two viruses and their management as a synergistic approach. Think about engagement in HIV care and engagement in hepatitis C care at the same time and work with patients to engage in successful treatment of both viral infections. So let's go back to the case. As you recall, this is a 32-year-old woman with established chronic hepatitis C and a relatively new diagnosis of HIV co-infection. Now, she has not yet been treated for hepatitis C and is not yet taking antiretroviral therapy for HIV infection. The hepatitis C treatment is recommended for all people with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. In your clinical practice, you can think about how you might stage that. Would you treat hep C first or HIE first? Or how would you do that? But it is important when talking to the patient to recommend treatment and understand that according to guidelines, all patients with co-infection are candidates for curative therapy. I'd like to turn you over to 
uh, the patient voice, to hear from a patient the perspective of treating both viral infections and how that plays out for these important conditions, which can be managed with antivirals. Hi, um, my name is Morris Murray. I'm 62 years old, and I was diagnosed with HIV in 1987. And at that time, there were no other treatments except AZT to treat HIV. And during that early period, I was also diagnosed with non-A, non-B hepatitis, which later would become known as hepatitis C. Early on, I didn't have any symptoms from the hepatitis. My liver enzymes were good, and I was working full-time and doing what I had to do. Then in 1996 is when the FDA approved protease inhibitors. For me, it was a game changer because my viral load went to undetectable with the uh, HIV, and I was thrilled. Anyway, by 1999, there were no treatments at that time for people co-infected with hepatitis and HIV. And I was sitting one day and I was reading the Baltimore City paper and I saw a clinical trials was recruiting for people co-infected with those diseases, just like me. And I thought, this is great. So I called the number and everything. And it took a while before we all got straightened out. And I had to go through a whole protocol. And part of the protocol was a liver biopsy. And like I said, I, at that time, my liver enzymes had started to increase a little bit, but they weren't crazy. But still, when I had the biopsy, I was floored when Dr. Salkowski informed me that I had stage four liver disease and stage liver disease or cirrhosis I had already. But I did make it into the trial. It was pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And I took that for a year. And which involved taking a pill and also shots of the interferon. It wasn't a great drug, but I, uh, you know, there were side effects. You constantly felt like you had a fetal flu. The rive of iron made you very anxious and agitated. But I continued it for a year and I was one of the non responders. So then this was about 2004. Uh, I started talking, or Dr. Solkowski discussed with me about transplant that there weren't any options at that point for more treatment. At this time, my liver was continually getting worse from the cirrhosis and the hepatitis C. And, you know, whenever I'd go in, Dr. Salkowski would say to me, it's drugs coming down the pipeline. There are drugs coming down the pipeline. And, you know, I, I liked having the transplant as a backup, but I really wanted to be treated and cured of my, of my hepatitis. And so I kept waiting and waiting. In 2011, a new drug came on the market, new antiviral came on the market to treat hepatitis C. I was gladly one to begin it. The treatment itself was pretty harsh. The side effects left me pretty debilitated. But after 90 days of the drug, you know, I did reach a response where I no longer had hepatitis C, and which even though it was a tough drug, I am glad that I took it. And then in 2012, because of the condition of my liver, and even though I was cured to hepatitis C, I had developed liver cancer. In December of 2012, I was finally got the call that I would have a transplant, that there was a donor. And on December 31st, 2012, I had liver transplant at Hopkins, and everything seemed to have went well. 
And then during the night, my vitals started to drop. They couldn't understand why at first. They had to reopen me up. And for whatever reason, the liver that I'd been given had failed to graft. So at that point, I was getting pretty sick again because I had no liver function. And so I was put into an induced coma. And so I don't really know what went on for the next three, four days. But they eventually got another donor, found another donor. I got the second liver on January 4th, 2013. And with that liver, I've been living now for over nine years with the donor liver. And I am thrilled every day with the gift I've been given. And it's been an incredible journey. Well, to summarize some of the key take-home points from the topics we've discussed, treatment of hepatitis C should be a priority for all people with HIV. Now, in approaching treatment, it's important to recognize that treatment is highly successful and effective, but one does need to manage drug interactions between all medications, particularly antiretrovirals and DAAs. These can be managed relatively simply for most patients. And then when we look at the benefits, we see benefits not only to the individual and prevention of chronic liver disease and progression to cirrhosis, but we also see that treatment can serve as prevention of transmission to others. Now, as we think about eliminating hepatitis C in people with HIV, I want to emphasize that it requires focus on the HIV care continuum and taking a combined approach to synergize antiviral therapy for both infections. And finally, I'll point you online for more CCO activities on key decisions in HIV care and thank you for your attention. Thank you to Dr. Solkowski and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.